the very foundation of Western society is racialized. The question for me is not whether we have it, it would be a matter of when was it eradicated, because the very foundation of our society is rooted in race. Matthew 25 says, I was thirsty, I was hungry, I was in prison. I had the knee on my neck. Jesus identifies with the threat. Baptism only imputed upon enslaved persons the liberty of their souls and not any physical freedom. And that, was, and that was embedded into the laws of this country. Hello, and thank you so much for joining us on It Is Written Canada for this panel discussion. So before we introduce our guests, I want to start off with a story, a true story. This happened when my youngest daughter, McLean, was four years old, and I wanted to ask her an adult-sized question. And so she was outside in her usual spot, outside on the, on the swings. It was a sunny day. She has a little white dog. Its name is Zoe. And the and dog was running around, around and around and around the swing set. And just happy, you know, wasn't, wasn't unhappy at all. You know, fluffy white tail was wagging and, um, and barking happily. And McLean was just singing away, just like she always does. And so I came outside and I said, McLean. And she said, yes, daddy. Without pausing, she just continued to go, continued swinging. And I said, McLean, I want to ask you a question. What do you think the world would look like if we were all the same? And so she started to giggle, you know, and, and, uh, and I said, what's so funny? And so she said to me, if we were all the same, we wouldn't be able to see anything. And she kind of lost me. So I said, what do you, what do you mean? Like, why wouldn't we be able to see anything? And she said, daddy, because if we were all the same, then the world would look like Zoe playing in the snow. So I looked at her and I went, and she says, when Zoe plays in the snow, the snow is white and she is white. And so everything is white and you can't see anything. So I kind of like sat down on the ground and, and, and I thought, wow, you know, how did my little four-year-old daughter become wiser than I am? <laughs> and so I said to her, McLean, and she said, yes, daddy. And I said, if we were all the same and the world was like Zoe playing in the snow. Would you like to live in a world like that? And she, she crinkled her forehead and she said, no, daddy, I, I, that would be boring. And so I said, what do you mean that would be boring? She said, different colors make me happy. She said, no one would want to live in a world where we are all the same color. Mm-hmm. And so, and, I, and of course she's right. Because even the people who say we would like everyone to be the same as us, it really wouldn't be happy in a world like that. Uh, you know, Jesus did not create us all the same. Mm-hmm. He created us to be unified, yes, but we are very diverse. I mean, we all came from the same pair, Adam and Eve, but we are all different. <laughs> and, and that differentness helps us to see each other. And, and to appreciate each other and to love one another. And so, um, you know, and I was reading this morning in, in uh, Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul is saying that praise for the unity of the Spirit, you know, and, and in John chapter 17, where Jesus is, is praying that we all will become one. And so we want to engage in this discussion together, and, um, and we have some guests with us, and so we're going to introduce those to you right now. Well, we feel so very honored to be working with three educated and talented servants of God. Firstly, we have with us Michael Nixon, who is the Vice President for Diversity and Inclusion at Andrews University. So welcome, Michael, and thank you for joining us. Thank you both for having me. And uh, we also have uh, Professor Kevin Burrell. And uh, Kevin is the is a is assistant professor of religious studies at Berman University in Lacombe, Alberta. Welcome, Kevin. 
Thanks for having me. Pleasure being here. And we also have Pastor Alex Golovenko, who is the pastor of the Windsor Seventh-day Adventist Church in Windsor, Ontario. Welcome, Alex. Greetings. Looking forward to a conversation. So we want to begin uh, with a word of prayer, and we're just going to ask Kevin if he would uh, open with a word of prayer. So let's pray together. Absolutely. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this opportunity that we have as brothers and sisters to sit together and to discuss a very pressing and present issue. We want to invite your Holy Spirit to guide our conversation, that everything that we do and say here will bring honor to you, that you will edify the church, and uh, make this conversation a blessing to someone who's listening today. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So, Kevin, I would like to begin by asking you, why does race matter? Yeah, why does race matter? Um, great question, Renee. Why does race matter? Race matters uh, because race has always mattered. Um, we can go as far back as we like, um, but uh, perhaps we could go back to the beginnings of uh, uh, societies here in the Western Hemisphere. Let's go back to the foundation of the United States, Canada, even uh, other Southern uh uh, countries in the Western Hemisphere. We recognize that the um, the Western nations were founded on racial premises. They were racialized and still are racialized societies. So race matters because the very foundation of our society uh, is rooted on racial, a racial hierarchy. So let's go back to um, how the motivations for people coming to the Western world. Europeans came to the Western world uh, as missionary, as explorers first, and then later on as traders, and then missionaries, colonial settlers, with good intentions in many ways to, in, to evangelize indigenous peoples and so forth. But that quickly turned into uh, a kind of um, colonization that resulted in the, the displacement, literally the, the, the near extinction of the indigenous peoples on, on, on the Western Hemisphere. By the same token, Africans came here uh, on Christian ships, they crossed the Atlantic to not to be equal in, in Western society, but to be chattel, to be slaves, to be work as animals, to, uh, to help to build a society in which they would never be or envisioned to be equal partners. So the very society, the very foundation of the society is racialized. It's rooted in a racial hierarchy that uh, stipulated um, the value of people based on external externalities like skin color and the like. And so within this hierarchy, we had um, a society that was, 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 was initially created for primarily uh, the ascendance of, of, uh, of those of European descent. And others would be, you know, insofar as Africans, for example, made it into the human taxon, which they often didn't, they were always consigned to the bottom of this racial, this racial uh, hierarchy. So the very foundation of Western society. Is racialized and so it, it, it race continues to impact us today as I've heard you know a number of people have said something like you know uh, we don't have systematic racism in our systems and so forth and, and I'm thinking well the question for me is not whether we have it is it would be a matter of when was it eradicated because the very foundation of our society is rooted in race and, and so it is part of who we are we think in racial terms whether we want to admit it or not but it's just part of, of, of our society. So race has mattered and continues to matter. And just I want to jump in there real quick, very quickly to give some of the American context. I think uh, Dr. Burrell's, you know, provided a uh, excellent analysis of what's happened in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, but here in, a, in, in the United States in particular, uh, we are now some 401 years after uh, the first uh, African persons were brought here to be enslaved. And, and so that has given us, and, and there was an amazing project called the 1619 Project, which I would encourage viewers to check out if they have an interest in learning more about that, because I don't have the time to exposit that all right now. But I'll, I'll share this quick nugget that um, <clears throat> was really eye-opening for me as a Christian, and it's one of the reasons why, and I know we're going to get to this more I think this conversation is so important for us as Christians uh, because before we had a, a U.S. Constitution, a, a Declaration of Independence, we see some over 100 years before the Declaration of Independence in the 1660s, uh, 
the Christian church wrapping itself up in the racialized subjugation of persons who are non-white. And so during that time in the Virginia Assembly, and at the time in order to be a part of the Virginia Assembly, which was the governing body of the then known uh, U.S. society, this is pre-United States, you had to be a white Anglican male. So it means you had to be a member of that church in order to have political power at the time. And one of the first issues they ran up against was uh, there were African enslaved persons that were being evangelized by the pilgrims at that time and being baptized into the Christian faith. And these enslaved persons were learning about all these verses about liberty and freedom and things of that nature. And so they were applying to the court system at that time to try to apply for that freedom uh, because of the fact that it's like, okay, I've been baptized into this church that gives me political power. I should be free to become a member of the society now. Mm. And so the Virginia Assembly, just very quickly, you can read up on this history. There's a great book called The Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby, which can give folks a a deeper look at this. Uh, Essentially what they did was they voted a measure which said that a, a baptism only imputed upon enslaved persons the liberty of their souls and not any physical freedom. And that, was, and that was embedded into the laws of this country. And, and so again, that's the 1660s. And there were several other laws that were built upon that to sort of formalize this Christian connection with uh, our political systems uh, subjugation of Africans through the uh, human chattel slavery, as Dr. Burrell was talking about. And so I think that race matters because, for us as Christians, ultimately, because we're embedded in that history and we really have to wrestle with that um, as our broader country and as the broader hemisphere has to wrestle with that. We have to wrestle with the Christian complicity in that system. Yeah. I might I interject real quickly here. Uh, Michael, the point you raised is excellent because one of the things we fail to realize is that slavery was fundamentally a Christian institution. Mm. It began with Catholic Christians and continued uh, with Protestant Christians. And there were justifications that came from the scripture itself uh, to justify the enslavement of blacks, such as the Hamitic hypothesis, which purported that Hamites were cursed and therefore were consigned perennially to slavery by the patriarch Noah. And so slave owners would uh, draw on, on this uh, justification uh, throughout the history of slavery to, to um, continue to, 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 to assuage their consciences of, of, of you know, the, the, the whole idea of engaging in this business of slavery. Just a quick, a quick anecdote, the very famous hymn that we often sing, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound that Saved the Wretch Like Me, was written by uh, John Newton, of course, in 1772. And John Newton, most people probably don't realize, was a, uh, was a, a captain of a slave ship for, for several decades. And so he, uh, his conscience bothered, bothered him so much um, that eventually, of course, he quit that business. And just the idea of being uh, God could save someone like such as him who was engaged in this most demeaning mm-hmm. kind of uh, uh, trade. Uh, it's from the, 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 the recesses of his, of his deep um, um, spiritual pain from which that, that song was penned, Amazing Grace. Of course, many have said it's, it's actually, um, the, the music comes from uh, the African tradition, you know, the African Negro spiritual tradition. Some have said, you know, John Newton heard slaves in the bottom of ships groaning and moaning these kinds of tunes. Mm. But the point is that um, at the end of the day, slavery was a profoundly Christian institution. And uh, we can't get away from that history. I appreciate you pointing out to the fact that race, the concept, the construct, has been so long that it's permeated all layers of society. Not to talk about race or races would be to live in a bubble and to be blind. Mm-hmm. And as you pointed out the church history, yes, it was the Pope Nicholas V gave permission to the Portuguese king, Alfonso yeah. V to permanently enslave all West Africa. And then after Columbus' discovery, it was Alexander VI who extended that doctrine to uh, indigenous natives and so on and so on. But I wanted to add this one more portion. 200 years later, 
the theory of evolution races to the whole next level. Yeah. I remember watching a film 2016 about Jesse Owens. You remember the title? It was entitled Wraith. It's about competition. Yeah. You see yeah. from Darwin's theory that it's about more favored or more advanced races competing, subjugating, and exterminating. Literally, that's the word he used, the less developed races. That attitude of competition still exists. And that's what we're up against. Now, I was shocked when I saw Ernst Haeckel's picture of human evolution. He has 12 faces. And even as much as we speak Black Lives Matter today, it's interesting that from his German perspective, Arabs and Jews were even closer to chimps. Mm. I'm just calling as it is. You look at picture number 11 in that, and it's shocking because that's how they see the world. And so we cannot not talk about it because that's the reality in which we are submerged today. Yeah. Okay, so Kevin, I just have a follow-up question for you. How should we understand Jesus's mission and the church's mission in relation to social justice? Um, excellent question. I think the best thing to do in that, uh, in, with respect to your question, would be to go to the biblical text itself. Um, so if we look at uh, Luke chapter 4, I'm just going to find it real quickly in my, in my Bible. If we look at Luke chapter 4 and, uh, and verse 18 and 19, um, this is, of course, after Jesus came back from being tempted and so forth, and he begins to set forward his, his mission. Um, and picked up the scroll and he began to, he began to read. And so if you look at Luke chapter 4, verse 18, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me um, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And that's significant right there. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Jesus construed his own mission of one of liberation. Um, of course, we know ultimately it's the liberation from sin and, and the kingdom of Satan that oppresses all of us as human beings. But in a more um, immediate sense, it's also the sense that the mission of Christ was one that aligned with uh, that of the prophetic voice in the Old Testament that decried social injustice in their own societies. And Jesus is the greatest of the prophets and therefore, um, social justice issues is central to, to Christ. It's central to the good news that he's preaching. And the good news that he's preaching is to the poor, it's to the oppressed. And insofar as we look at Luke, for example, Luke is constantly saying things like, you know, the tables are going to turn. Blessed are the poor, but woe to you who are rich, and so forth. It's the idea that um, it's the oppressed, the marginalized, the crooked places out shall be made straight and the rough plain uh, places will be straightened out. Ultimately, God is going to bring ultimate justice to, to those who are oppressed under the bondage of not just Satan, but under those who are the elites and the elites and the, the upper echelons of the, heart, of the social hierarchies mm -hmm. are often oppressing what is the proverbial poor, the, the orphan, the widows, and the strangers slash the resident alien. And so we, we live uh, in a time where we still have the same problem, where the, the, the stranger, the alien, uh, is, 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 uh, it's, it's problematic dealing with, with aliens in our society and with the proverbial poor and widows. So Jesus' mission aligns with social justice in short. So insofar as we are going to um, align ourselves with his ideals, then we have to also concern ourselves with social injustice. And of course, it's always expensive to do that because there are so many investments in, in, in us not actually taking seriously the plight of the poor and the oppressed. Yes. But notice Jesus identifies with the oppressed. Matthew 25 says, I was, I was hungry. I was in prison. Yeah. I was beaten and I'm pushing it. I had the knee on my neck. Jesus identifies with the oppressed. Mm. Yeah. Talking about the knee on the neck, let's talk about police brutality. Um, Michael, I want to address that. Uh, what does the gospel have to do with race relations, police brutality, and the current social climate that, that we're seeing? Yeah, yeah, great question. And um, 
great comments from, from Alex and Kevin there as well. And I just want to build on that. So um, I think we actually first, in trying to contextualize what the gospel has to do with those things, um, we have to look, uh, again, we look to Jesus, um, but we also look at the uh, Old Testament prophetic tradition within which Jesus stood. And so we have, you know, two quick verses I'll just mention in particular, Amos 5.24, and in the New Living Translation, it says there, instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice. So mm -hmm. justice everywhere. That's what the prophet is saying. An endless river of righteous living. And so righteousness, of course, we know is another word for justice. So basically, the prophet is just saying twice, I want to see justice, a mighty flood everywhere in the systems of our world. And we also want to see people who are just. And then that, of course, is uh, reiterated by Micah 6, 8, the famous verse, what does the Lord require of you to do justly? So to be a just person, to love mercy, because you have to bathe that justice in mercy and to walk humbly before your God. And of course, we see in the person of Jesus, the most beautiful embodiment of that, that humility that mercy, but also that justice and that willingness to turn over tables of systems and structures that are oppressing people. And lastly, I want to contextualize this within what does this mean for us now as the body of Christ? And why should we as the body be engaged with race relations? Why should we be responsive to police brutality? And why should the current social climate matter to us? And so of course, in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, Paul gives us this picture. It starts off with talking about spiritual gifts and how we're all given different gifts and functions within the body. Uh, and then it moves into talking about one body, many parts, and how the body is unified, but it is not uniform. You know, we're not all eyes. We're not all mouths. We're not all ears. We're not all hands. Some of us have to be feet. And, and you know, we don't often, you know, like feet that can get gross. They can get a little smelly maybe after a long day. And, you know, this is maybe another conversation, but I'll just say real quick, I believe that justice work really is the work of the feet. And that's oftentimes why we shy away from it from the church, but we have to remember that without your feet, you can't be a movement. And if you're not a movement, then you're just a monument and we've been called to be a movement. And so in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 26, one of my favorite verses, it says there that if one part of the body suffers, yeah. the entire body suffers. Yeah. And if one part of the body is honored, the entire body is celebrated. So what that means to me is that when we say Black Lives Matter, we are by extension saying all lives matter because our Black brothers and sisters are a part of our beautiful, diverse body of Christ. And when we take the time to look at what's happening in, in that particular sector or in other sectors that are hurting, then the entire body is being looked at. We can all share in that. And so when we see things like police brutality happening uh, to um, Black people um, in this country in particular, um, the entire body feels that. You know, it's not just, you know, something that the, the Black community is dealing with. But if we are that unified body of Christ that is seeking to be the movement we've been called to be, then we are responsive to that based upon the gospel framing we've been given for how that body should operate. And, and so hopefully that's helpful uh, for folks to understand why this should matter so much to them. Because when you stub your toe, you feel it through, at least I do, my, my toes maybe are a little bigger than others. I feel that throughout my whole body. And so, you know, you can't, you know, have a hangnail or something and just ignore it and act as if it, as if it doesn't exist. It's going to affect the way your body functions. And so we have to be responsive to that. I like the reference to the body because it's, when we talk about this, we talk about something called systemic racism. So it's a part of the system. And sometimes when this systemic, it's, it's invisible. Um, so when we talk about white privilege, for example, um, it, it sort of sparks a, uh, I think a, a feeling that you're trying to make me feel guilty because I'm white. And I don't know that that's the right response, but certainly it, it, is, a, it is a response because you're thinking, what did I do wrong? What, what exactly did I do wrong here? And, uh, and I don't know that it's, it's necessarily you've done something wrong. It's just right. that something has been done wrong to someone else who, and, and it's, 
it's not recognizing that. Um, like, um, I think I can understand what Mark's <laughs> saying because um, I was born and raised in South Africa, and so I was, I grew up throughout the era of apartheid mm -hmm. back yeah. in South Africa, and so. Yes, I was privileged as a white person, but for me, that was normal, mm -hmm. you know? Right. And for, it was normal until we went back to South Africa to visit after mm -hmm. we'd immigrated to Canada, and I saw the way that I was brought up through the eyes of my five-year-old daughter. I think she was five or six at the time, and she would she was saying, "Mommy, why why can't she sit at the table with us? Why can't she watch TV with us? Why can't she um, sleep in the same house as us? Why does you know our maid have to be out? Why does Anna have to be outside?" And so mm -hmm. it was mm -hmm. it was such an eye opener for me, mm -hmm. and. Because for me, that was normal. And for Amey, that was normal. That yeah. was just the way things were. And when I saw it through Joanne's eyes, it was... Yeah. It awoke you to, yeah. Yeah, to the invisibility of it. Exactly, it yeah. Was, it was invisible for you. I mean, Anna was like a mother. Yeah, she was part of our family. Yeah. You know, but yet she was part of the family as it was portrayed to be during apartheid yeah but but she didn't live in your house no she didn't live in our house but she yeah. was part of the family yeah. and then when joanne came she was like no this makes no sense like yeah. she's yeah. not she's not part of the family because she's not eating with us she's not sleeping with us in the same house and so yeah. it was such yeah. a whoa an eye opener yeah and i think then when you take that into the north american context you're sort of this this seems not even serious but yet it's more serious because it seems completely invisible mm -hmm. like would you like to experience uh, as a I, I mean as a white person meeting a, a, a police officer I'm not worried you know if I, I'm polite and stuff but if I thought to myself would I like to be a Native American person, or would I like to be a, a Black American person meeting a police officer? And right away, I would say no. <laughs> I mean, from what I'm seeing, it doesn't look like a an advantage <laughs> to to be Black. Uh, you guys have raised some really salient uh, points there. Number one, I've I've also been to South Africa and saw. I remember just driving through uh, my. Uh, my dissertation supervisor at the time driving me through some of these neighborhoods and I could just see this clear disparity between where uh, uh, Caucasian folks lived, where colored folks lived, and where the black folks lived. Just, just, uh, just stark contrast. It was just amazing. You could just see it so clearly. But uh, in terms of race, we're really, again, going back to the idea of the, of the historical roots of it. So uh, the society was not created with black folks in mind to share in equal rights with, yeah. with, with, with white folks. So white, so-called white privilege would go back to that very foundation. Uh, one of the things in terms of immigration Canada did, for example, was to advertise land that was uh, cleared of the indigenous peoples and advertise those lands for Europeans as free. They could come over and start farms and, and large estates and so forth um, at the expense of those indigenous peoples who were here. And of course, so, so again, it goes back to those historical roots that they're still with us, just in different uh, iterations, different expressions. Uh, police brutality is just another form of that suppression and oppression of uh, what of 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 uh, of black folks in, in particular. You know, when when in 1865, four million slaves were freed, the Americans had to contend with what to do with these, these uh, 400 uh, f and freed uh, individuals who we once enslaved? What do we do with them? Of course, there was all kinds of things stipulated at the time, including, believe it or not, genocide, including let's kill them all. Uh, you know, it wasn't entertained for too long, but it certainly was on the table. But then the next thing was, let's send them back to Africa. And real plans were being made to, 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 do, to do that because they were not supposed to be uh, free individuals within our societies. That's, that's not how the society was framed 
in the first place. So uh, we just begin, we just see these things change over time, different expressions, um, and that's why it's important for 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 those who are truly followers of Jesus to follow in His steps and stand against social injustice in our own time. You're speaking about that uh, formation of Liberia, uh, sending freed slaves back to Africa. Is the concept out of sight, out of mind? Yes, yeah, absolutely. You want to absolutely. Face reality. As you're talking about police brutality, I'm thinking of the Good Samaritan story. Are we going to be priests and Levites walking by? Are we going to be the Samaritans? But in that, it's also an interesting lesson. Samaritans were hated, raised by Jews. And Jesus picked up from that. And right now, some people want to discredit the Black Lives Matter movement because of the sketchy reputation of some of the founders back in 2012 or so on. And I'm saying, guess what? That's all right that Samaritans are noticing the wounded and stepping in. It's shame enough that it took us so long to start speaking up against it. But you don't have to go to South Africa. I'll tell you a little story. 2005. We moved to London as a new pastoral council, and we're looking for an apartment. So we're driving up Windermere, and we came to a place where the road splits into two. On the left is Block Acre, and guess who lives there? It's townhouses. On the right, it's White Acres, and that's all million-dollar homes. And so I looked at that, and I said to my wife, just, just, just imagine, just look at this. So there's a lot of Hidden things. What opened my eyes? I have to go and admit, yes, there is white privilege. No question. You know, it's tempting for me to point fingers and say, look, I'm not Anglo. I'm Ukrainian. My great-grandparents did not have slaves. But the reality is the moment I moved to Canada, this skin color gives me privilege that others don't. I've seen it because when I go to rent an apartment, I get the best deal. And I had an experience where they meet my wife and they change my mind. They go back on the deal that we just made. Because see, a married girl who's mixed, African and native. Okay. And so reality is we have to first admit that there is a wound before we could clean it and treat it. Yeah, very good. Michael, I want to talk about the history of race relations within the Seventh-day Adventist Church. How might the history of race relations within the church impact our response to the wider social unrest that we see today? Yeah, great, great question. And um, I'll, I'll be concise through this. Um, and, I'm, and I'm speaking particularly from uh, the U.S. context. And so there, there are lots of different global uh, race relation topics that likely look different. And so I just want to concede that I'm not, you know, speaking from that entire context. But uh, I think what we need to understand as far as how the Adventist church operated in the United States is because um, of course, as most people will know, we have uh, sort of a two conference system here in, in the U S we have the, the state conferences, which are historically and oftentimes contemporarily seen as predominantly white. And then you have your regional conferences, uh, which are predominantly black. And that, that may not bear out in the membership of local churches now, but for the, mo the majority of instances, that's what we have. And then you have folks from all over the world that are kind of in between that. And so, the, you know, that can be just kind of confusing for, for them, of course, I'm sure. Um, but in, in the mid-1940s, uh, it was 1943 or 44, what the church decided to do in North America or in, in America is to establish what they called at the time uh, colored conferences. Uh, the GC had already had what was called the Negro Department. Um, and, and, and the first one was established here in the area of the country I'm in, the Lake Region Conference. And at the time, uh, the, the, the white leadership of the General Conference said that uh, this is going to ultimately fail and, and you'll come crawling back to us. Uh, but I think what's important to point out is that um, you know, colored conferences at the time were not created because black people wanted their own conferences. They were actually created because white Adventists at the time wanted to maintain white conferences. Because for the decades leading up to that point, uh, you had prominent black leaders in the Adventist church that were petitioning literally just to be recognized as Adventists. They'd, they'd accepted our Advent message. 
the, the work was growing among black persons in, in the states at that time, and they just wanted to be a uh, legitimate part of the, of the system and structure of the church, and they kept being told, no, no, no. Uh, the last thing I'll share, and this is a sobering reality, is that um, back in 1889, uh, a gentleman by the name of Charles M. Kinney, he was the first black uh, person in the U.S. to be ordained as a minister, and he was ordained at the Southern Conference camp meeting. Uh, as you can imagine, the campground was segregated at the time, and he was making remarks to a gentleman by the name of Robert M. Kilgore, who was the leader of the Southern Conference at the time, and, and Kenny said a lot of things, but the thing that stuck with me um, the most is, first of all, he talks about how the three angels message when properly understood had within it the power to destroy these walls of racial separation that we have in the church. Uh, one of the other things that he said that was very sobering was that his prayer was that the church's stance on this issue would not push black people out of the church. And what we saw now, he's almost spoke prophetically then, is what we see going into the 1920s and 30s and going into the 40s when the GC segregated the church here is that there were prominent black leaders. One that comes to mind is J.K. Humphrey, who was a prominent uh, black minister in the New York area. He left the Adventist church because of the racism in the church. And, and it was literally a culmination because he and others just couldn't take it anymore. A culmination of Kenny's fear back in the late 1800s that the church's stance would push people out. And so thinking about that history now, as I wrap up, um, I think what we're seeing contemporarily now are young people of all races, you know, black, white, whatever, who are um, awakening to what's happening in our society, uh, the, the injustice, the, the racism systemically, and as well as in our institution, uh, and, and the institutions across the board in the church and outside of the church. And they are um, hearing a deafening silence. And, and what I'm starting to see, because of course I work with young people here at Andrews, is that um, we're also dealing with Generation Z, which if you've read anything about them, there's a great book about Gen Z, which is called Rise of the Nuns. And that's not N-U-N-S, like uh, Catholic nuns, that's N-O-N-E-S, which means the largest growing religious group in the States right now are folks who have no religious affiliation, uh, mm -hmm. and, and which means they, this is not even on their radar to have any kind of moral compass um, as they're pursuing these different issues, because conversely, they're the most, uh, they're, they're seen as the most um, social justice oriented generation and so that Luke 4, 11, which, which, uh, Luke 4, 18 and 19, which Kevin was reading, uh, the embodiment of Christ's uh, gospel, which was a social justice gospel, we have a generation rising up that embodies that the most, but they're, they're the least connected to the church than they've ever been in our country's history. And I think part of that is because one of the parts that's interesting about uh, after Christ read the scroll, they, of course, in Nazareth tried to kill him. Mm -hmm. and, and they led him up to the highest point and, and he had to pass through the crowd invisibly in order to not be killed at that moment. And, and what we have seen, sadly, in, in, in many instances, is that the church has been killing Christ's message and, and, and therefore now it is pushing out entire, I mean, I'm, a, I'm an older millennial is what they call me now. And scores of my friends are out of this church and we're seeing another generation just not even leaving they just never even felt a part of it so once they graduated from our institution they never looked back and so we as a church have to really just take you know just that's just the reality and we have to awaken to that and we have to get back to our first love get back to the spirit of the Lord being upon us, bringing good news to the poor, setting liberty to the oppressed, uh, bringing a sight to the blind, uh, giving liberty to the captive, because that was Christ's mission, and, and we have to start doing that again. Uh, if I might chime in here, excellent summary, Michael. Um, I think the thing for me that is profoundly challenging is the fact that um, the racism in the broader society 
is reflected and even augmented in the context of the church. And I'm speaking now specifically in the Christian church, Adventism, as well as, as, as others. Uh, particularly in the context of Adventism, it's just uh, amazing that we have both the biblical message, and as we'll talk about in a bit, the message of, of uh, Sister Ellen G. White, and yet the church as a whole has not embraced uh, that uh, the, that message of social justice that comes from those two sources. And to the contrary, we've had histories of segregated, as you mentioned, camp meetings, segregated schools, segregated hospitals. We could, uh, Adventists, uh, Black Adventists couldn't be admitted to many of our institutions where, you know, throughout this history. So we have these things uh, ingrained in the church in as much as in society and, and sometimes even more uh, pronounced in the, in the context of, of the church than in society. So it's an issue that goes deep and it's something that we have to profess we have to challenge we have to look it in the eye and we have to recognize what it is and we have to challenge it well, Kevin you just mentioned um, Mrs. White so what might Seventh-day Adventists learn from Ellen White's statements on race that might inform our own actions in the present yeah excellent question uh, I think we can go back to the the um, the era of uh, the Emancipation Proclamation um, in the early 1860s, we begin to see uh, Sister White start writing. Uh, she was always preaching it, but she started writing even more profoundly about equality of the races and the fact that the slave, the enslaved, was no one's property. And, um, and so we see her even advocating social disobedience, civil disobedience. So do not send back the slaves to their masters as the law stipulates, um, but rather you know, whatever the consequences you have to bear uh, in, in, this, in the civil context, bear those consequences. But she wrote to her, to, to her readers not to listen to the law of the land, where the law of the land is in opposition to the law of Christ. She says we should obey the latter. And so we see Ellen White advocating the, 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 the even social disobedience. Um, and we see her uh, talking about constantly the equality of racism. More importantly, in the context of the work in the South, she was a vociferous voice for, uh, for action, for evangelization of the, the enslaved, the previously enslaved. And she was basically uh, saying that uh, we need to do everything in our power to help better their situation. Uh, you know, we need to take responsibility as much as possible to help ameliorate them. Of course, education was a thing that was, 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 a, was, a, was a, a thing that was not supposed to be granted to, to Southern Blacks. And so um, her call to Adventists fell on deaf ears for, for decades until her son, Edson White, as we know, um, in the 1890s, uh, began the work in the South uh, on, the, on the Morning Star, which resulted in, in Oakwood, Oakwood University. So at the end of the day, it's, it's the, the, the singular voice of Ellen White that um, was the catalyst for the work in the South among Adventists. And it took a long time for that message to, 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 to sink in. And she invested her own money yeah. and invested to make it happen. And so we see this kind of um, uh, example that she set, which was um, very uh, slow to catch on in, in, in the Adventist community. But the church, as Michael says, was far more concerned about being the head and the hands and not the feet. So um, that's more or less when, when it comes to Adventism, we have a great example in, in, in Sister White as to how to, to deal and to approach this subject. But unfortunately, the church often has turned a blind eye. She has even stronger expression. I'm thinking of Southern War, page 15. She says, sin rests upon a church because we have not made greater effort. Absolutely. And she pushes even further. She says, this way, the way we treat African people is an offense to God. So let's just get honest about our heritage and maybe we have not lived up to those ideals set by our pioneers. Yeah. So, so Alex, I want to I want to finish up. We we're running out of time here, but but how do we educate believers within the church uh, to to be aware of these cultural biases and stereotypes, and and not just say kind of give lip service, but but to actually do a heart search, so so that we say, hey, I. I, I, uh, I'm responsible for, for how, what, what has been given to me, but what the way in which I see others and, and, and how that changes my heart. Because ultimately, Christ wants us to be united. That doesn't mean uniformity. doesn't mean we're going to be the same. 
uh, we will retain our, our personal differences and things. But these, these biases and these stereotypes, they get in the way. So how, how do we educate people to, to overcome that? You know, I think before we could educate, we need to take time to listen. Because when we come from position of power, as we've got all the answers already, we're already turning people off in a way. We have to listen first. We need to stop using those clubbering passages like Romans 13, 1, you know, subject yourself to authorities and first Peter 2, 2, and start looking deeper at the biblical meaning of our role as a church. Uh, this is where we need to get engaged in dialogue. Last Sabbath, we here in Windsor did a town hall for our youth, and we simply asked them to come and talk. We as pastors have to listen. And I tell you, hearing the cheerful voice of young people who were born and raised here, they're Canadian. Yes, their parents came as immigrants from Congo or other parts, telling their stories of rejection. We need to validate. You know, when people are hurt out there and they come to church, we need to validate their pain. We need to stop the attitude or just pull yourself by, you know, bootstraps and, you know, get it together. We need to validate, we need to be there, ministry of presence, just embrace them and feel the pain with them. Okay. So before we educate, we need to listen, we need to take time to understand. And I wanted to address this issue of protest. Uh, was just one example, all right? Acts chapter 16, Apostle Paul is in jail. And we all know the story. After the earthquake, the jailer gets converted. But there's an interesting thing. The next day, I read verse 35. Magistrates sent officers saying, let these men go. So the keeper of the prison tells Paul, well, depart in peace. You're free. You're free to go. And guess what Paul does? Civil disobedience, protest. Paul says in verse 37, they've beaten us openly. Now they want to put us out secretly? No. No, indeed. If that is not a protest, I don't know what protest is. Yeah. Now, if we have time, there are hundreds of passages that exemplify protest against injustice. Yeah. And so again, my appeal to church leaders, to elders, to pastors, do not rush with answers. Take time, listen, learn, pray. See mm. God's direction before we answer that we will not regret our answers later. Yeah, thank you. So can, can I share two quick things? I know yeah. we're probably way over time, but this will be really quick. Uh, one quick, and thank you so much, uh, Pastor Golovenko, for, for sharing that. Um, one quick thing I would say in regards to becoming aware of cultural biases and stereotypes, there is a psychology concept called categorizing, and it just, that's a reflection of what uh, we, you know, our brains do with information. And so if I said to you all, um, just you know the two words uh, home ownership you probably think of lots of things you think of you know buying furniture drapes things of that nature and and, and that's our brain automatically having categorized certain words and things that fit within that concept mm -hmm. what i would think of as a black man and, and as someone who's worked in the fair housing and housing discrimination sector is i would think about am i going to be told the truth about the price of housing? Am I going to be um, given favorable terms by a lender? Because, you know, I happen to know about that happening. You know, I worked in the New York City metro area and thought that stuff was done and New York's a melting pot, but it's still very much alive today. But that's informed by my experience. And so we have these different maybe biases or stereotypes that aren't necessarily negative, but it's a natural part of how our brain operates. And the first step in overcoming that, actually, the literature shows, is just becoming aware of that. I just made you aware of it just now. And that's the first step of starting to overcome the way that our brains automatically categorize information to impute stereotypes on different persons. So that's hopefully something practical for folks. The second quick thing I would say and this is directed more towards, I'd say, church leadership, GC leadership in particular. Ellen White made a really interesting statement in the wake of emancipation. You know, Dr. Burrell was talking about some of her statements. But uh, in the late 1800s, she talks about the fact that 
America owes a debt of love, she called it, to the Black race. And then she also says that those who were not slave owners are not absolved from the responsibility to remove from Black people the, the sure result and stain of their enslavement. So what that means is that those of us who are a part of Earth's history now, although we did not propagate some of those things, we stand within the legacy of the decisions that have been made and we are not absolved from our responsibility to address them. And so the GC leadership we have now, you know, you know, President Ted Wilson is not President McIlvaney who oversaw the vote in the 40s, but he stands in that position now and as a steward and leader of our church and other leaders of our church, they have to reckon with the fact that we made a bad decision. We segregated the church when we should have came together and been a countercultural movement and testimony to America, uh, as opposed to doing that, we just flowed with the, the tide of the time. So we need to confess that, first of all, we need to lament that, search our own hearts, and then I think that starts to trickle down to the membership of our church and understanding that, wow, we've now owned the mistake that we made. No, we weren't there in the 40s when this, well, some people may still be around. Most of us weren't around in the 40s when that happened. But now we are, we are not saying that it's enough to say we weren't there when it happened. We have inherited that decision. Now what are we going to do about it? Awesome. Michael, I want to give a pastoral cry here. Some people speak against the corporate repentance, and I've read some articles here and there. But I think for us an example is Daniel, chapter 9. He is a perfect man, and yet he prays, O oh Lord, to us belongs shame on the face. You see, our fathers, because we have sinned. It is all right for us in 2020 to admit the sins of our fathers and mistakes of the past. And I think our church is waiting for the corporate admission of the past problems. Yeah. Thank you so much. You know, Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. To have that love, to have that humility of a child, um, to be able to, to, uh, to see things as they really are. So we want to thank you for uh, all, all of you for taking your time. It's super busy with your schedules uh, to join us today and contributing to this discussion, uh, which is obviously not going to answer all questions, but it's, it's good just to get this, this open and on the table and to continue to create this awareness. Friends, we would also like to invite you to follow It Is Written Canada on Instagram and Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel and also listen to our podcast. And if you go to our webpage, you can see our latest programs, including our short spiritual messages entitled Daily Living. And they're all there free for you to watch whenever you choose because we want you to experience the truth that is found in the words of Jesus when he said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to watch a video of this podcast, please visit iiw.ca. Or you can go to IIW Canada YouTube and click on the videos tab. Once again, thank you so much for listening.